is a joy to welcome you to our weekly teaching session. Sadly, we are still not able to get together as we are accustomed to. We're in the seventh week of our coronavirus hiatus. So we are hoping and trusting that this will come to an end very quickly and we will be able to resume our normal worship practice and church activities as you and I would prefer. Well, we once again are going to be in the book of Revelation. We're going to look now at the sixth church, which is the church at Philadelphia. This is Revelation chapter 3, verses 7 through 13. And we're going to follow a fairly similar outline. A couple of differences is that this church at Philadelphia, like the church at Smyrna, there was no rebuke. So that part will not be in our outline today. And then also the very brief instruction that is given to the church is mixed in with the promises. And so rather than jumping in and out of verses, we will just deal with the instruction as a part of the promise that is given to this church. So let's begin as we read together from Revelation 3, verses 7 through 13, the faithful church. Here's what the word of God says to us today. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, He who is holy who is true, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one will open, says this, I know your deeds. Behold, I have put before you an open door, which no one can shut, because you have a little power, and have kept my word, and have not denied my name. Behold, I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan, who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie, I will make them come and bow down at your feet and make them know that I have loved you. Verse 10. Because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I also will keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have so that no one will take your crown. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he will not go out from it any more. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God and my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is a very uh, deep passage of Scripture. There are many allusions to things in the Old Testament. There are things that allude to the future in an eschatological sense. It's rich with imagery and symbolism. So I'll tell you at the very beginning, this is going to be a bit of a lengthy message. I'll do my best to get through this as quickly and as clearly as possible. So number one in our outline, as always, is the messenger. Now let's read again verse 7 and see how the messenger reveals himself to the church at Philadelphia. And to the church, excuse me, and to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write, He who is holy, who is true, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one will open, says this. So as always... This letter is written to the angel, which is the pastor or the elder or the plurality of elders that are given the leadership of the church. So our impression of what is said to us will often depend on our idea of the character of him who speaks. So as a pastor, as a Christian, we all should take very, very seriously what we hear from the Word of God, and in this application, most specifically, 
to the church at Philadelphia. So what we're going to see in the way the messenger reveals himself to the church, and if you remember from last week, it's a mixture of not only who he is, but what he does, something of his character and also something of his work. We see this mixed in in the messenger instruction here today. 1A, and I don't usually have a 1A when we're looking at this kind of a numerical outline, but 1A, he is the holy one. The phrase, he is holy, in the Greek literally says the holy one. He is the holy one. Now, the Old Testament repeatedly describes God as the holy one. For example, we see in Hosea 11:9, God says, For I am God and not man, the holy one in your midst. We would read in Isaiah 40, verse 25, To whom then will you liken me that I would be his equal, says the holy one. But the Holy One is more than just a title. It is a description of the character of God. So, 1B, He is Holy Other. Not only is He the Holy One, but we understand this to mean that He is Holy Other. He possesses absolute holiness. He is the personification of absolute perfection. He is wholly separate from man, where man is deeply marred by the stain of sin and lives his entire Christian life trying to rid himself of the power and presence of sin. God, on the other hand, is utterly and completely separate from sin. His character is unblemished. His character is flawless. He's free from defect. He has no flaw. He has no weakness. He has no propensity to sin. He is absolute purity. He is absolute perfection. He is the Holy One who is wholly other than all of mankind. We would read in Isaiah 6-3 as Isaiah described this incredible vision of seeing God in the temple, the train of His robe, in the temple, it says in Isaiah 6:3, and one called to another and said, "Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory." So the angelic beings who appeared in the temple that Isaiah saw constantly shouted to one another, "Holy, holy, holy." is the Lord of hosts. We would read in Revelation 4:8 as we view this heavenly worship experience, Revelation 4:8, and the four living creatures, each one of them having six wings, are full of eyes around and within, and day and night they do not cease to say, "Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. So this is not only the Old Testament description of God as the Holy One, it is a New Testament affirmation of the character of the Holy One. This title of the Holy One for God is used as a messianic title for Jesus 
and the New Temple in the New Testament. For example, in Luke 1:35, as the angel appeared to Mary to foretell the birth of Jesus, it says in Luke 1:35, "The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you." And for that reason, the Holy Child or the Holy One shall be called the Son of God. Early in Jesus's public ministry. We would read in Mark 1.24 a designation given to Jesus by a demon who says this, What business do we have with each other, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Jesus' own disciples would affirm this title for Jesus in John 6.69 through the spokesman Peter when he says, We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. So as Jesus speaks to the angel, as he describes himself in this vivid display of who the messenger is, as the Holy One, this self-designation he gives to himself, it very clearly affirms the deity of Jesus. Jesus Christ possesses in undiminished, unaltered essence the holy and sinless nature of God, just as we would understand from the Old Testament, Jesus is the Holy One. But not only is He the Holy One, number two, He is true. When He says, I am true, it means that He is authentic and genuine and real. Now let's be honest with ourselves. In the world, and sadly even in the church, it is filled with imposters. In the world and even in the church, it is sometimes filled with perversion. It is sometimes full of error and falsehood. But in the midst of what we see in the world and what we might see or hear or experience within the local church, Jesus is true. John 1.9, Jesus, excuse me, there was the true light which coming into the world enlightens every man. Jesus is the true light. We would read in John 1.14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw His glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. And then Jesus Himself would say in John 14.6, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through Me. There are many who seek to lead mankind away from the central truth of the person and the position of Jesus Christ, but all of these must be rejected. In any religious expression, in any sacred writing, if Jesus is not central to the object of worship or to the truth of what is being revealed, then it must be be rejected. We must keep our eyes on the author and the finisher of our faith. We need to be very careful to have a spiritual discernment about us to be able to sift out what is false, 
what is perverted and what is untrue, and instead focus on the centrality of the person and the position of Jesus Christ as the Holy One of God, the One who is true. Now, we'll pick this idea up a little bit later in our passage of Scripture about the necessity of the Christ-centeredness of our practice in our religious expression. Now, the third truth that we see revealed to us as a part of the description of the messenger is this. He holds the key, the key of David, and this symbolizes authority of the kingdom. Now, it's important for us to understand what these words mean. So, as we think about a key, we would understand that there's something important, something special about a key. You can imagine a young boy who looks into the garage or into the driveway and sees dad's car, and he knows that that symbolizes something for him It is my way to get with my friends. It is my opportunity to go out and have some fun. But he does not have the key. He does not possess the authority to be in that car and to operate that car apart from the owner of the key's approval. That's the same thing that we would understand in Scripture. A key represents authority. The one who holds the key is the one who is in charge. We read in Matthew 16:19, Jesus speaking to Peter and on behalf of Peter to all the disciples, he says, "I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven." So Jesus gives his authority to his disciples And in the administration of the kingdom of God, the disciples are the ones who are going to be in charge. So that's a little bit about what the key means in this passage of Scripture. Now, additionally, in Scripture, the use of the name David is much more than a reference to the physical, literal King David who ruled over the nation of Israel. It is a reference to the messianic office that David was a symbol of and that his rule foreshadowed in the future. For example, in Revelation 22:16, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. And so Jesus himself, in this verse in Revelation indicates that there is a messianic implication in a reference to King David. Jesus is the root of David, and he is a descendant of David, giving validity to his authority over the kingdom of God. Now, the specific phrase, the key of David, comes from Isaiah 22, 22. The whole passage, I think, begins at verse 12 and runs through about verse 25. But in this passage, there is an individual who is the steward of the royal household for King Hezekiah, and that steward's name is Shebna. And as the steward for the royal household, he was the one that controlled access to the king. He had the authority 
to allow or to deny entrance or access to the authority because he was the steward. Now, in this passage in Isaiah, we find out that Shebna was unfaithful. He was not worthy of given the char- get, being given the charge of the royal household. And so God was removing that authority from him. And it was going to be transferred to the new shepherd, to the, to the new steward. And that was Eliakim. Eliakim would now be the one who held the authority for access and entrance into the royal household. household. And so what we would read in Isaiah 22:22, speaking of Eliakim, God says, Then I will set the key of the house of David on his shoulder. When he opens, no one will shut. When he shuts, no one will open. So David was not the king at this time. Hezekiah was the king. But Hezekiah ruled under the symbolic authority of the key of David, looking back at the literal rule of David and foreshadowing the future rule of David as fulfilled in the Messiah. So as the steward, the one who has the ability to grant and deny access and entrance into the royal household, Notice what he does. He opens and shuts. The one who holds the key is the one who opens and shuts the door, locking and unlocking. He allows or denies entrance and access to whomever he chooses. Just like as a father has the authority over the key to his car, he may give it to a son, he may give it to a friend, he may give it to whomever he chooses, but when he gives that key, he gives authority to use that automobile. This is exactly what is being described here from the messenger to the angel and what it is he is saying to the church. So let's put verse 7 all together. Here's what it says again. He who is holy, who is true, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one opens, says this. Jesus is the one who controls access to the kingdom of God because he is the holy one, he is the truth, and has already, as has already been stated, Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. Jesus as the Holy One, Jesus as the one that is true, the one who holds the key of David, is the one who opens the door to his spiritual kingdom, and it is he who shuts the door to his spiritual kingdom. He allows whomever he chooses, and he denies to whomever he chooses. This is the function of Jesus, the one who is God in full deity, the one who is the Messiah. This is his function, and this is exactly what it affirms to us, that Jesus is the Messiah. The sovereign, omnipotent God who rules over his kingdom and his church. What Jesus, the Holy One, says and does cannot be overturned by anyone, regardless of the worldly power they may possess. We read in Isaiah 43, 13, 
God says, even from eternity, I am he, I am, the great I am, and there is none who can deliver out of my hand, I act, and who can reverse it? As we put together our understanding of who the Holy One is, and what the Holy One does as the one who controls entrance into the kingdom, it affirms that what God says and does is set in stone, It cannot be changed. It cannot be overturned. It is secured through the sovereign rule of Jesus over this world. I would imagine that for this church in Philadelphia, having an understanding of what these things meant, it would have been a tremendous encouragement to them, just as it ought to be a tremendous encouragement to us today. God is in control. Jesus, the Holy One, the one who holds the key to his kingdom, will prevail and we rest securely in him because of the great gift of salvation that he chose to give to us, opening the door of his royal kingdom to us because that's what he desired to do. In these days of uncertainty is what you trust Holy other, or is it anchored in man? Is it anchored in the world? Is it anchored in finance? Is it anchored in government or education or something else? Is what you trust true? Is there the possibility that down the road you would be, you would be made aware of your being deceived by someone that you trusted in? Is the one you trust in True. Are you confident that what you trust in will prevail, that nothing can overwhelm it, overtake it, or overrule it, is what we believe in holy and true, and are we certain that it will prevail? Well, as long as we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, we can be sure that we trust in the right thing. Now, number two in our outline very familiarly, very familiarly, is his commendation. Verse 8 reads, I know your deeds. Behold, I have put before you an open door which no one can shut, because you have a little power, and have kept my word, and have not denied my name. So, just like in all the churches, Jesus knows their deeds, and in this instance, he finds no reason to rebuke them or to condemn them as he has for of the other churches. Now, make no mistake about it. This is not a perfect church. This is a church that doesn't have a fatal flaw. We would do well to remember that there is no perfect church because there are no perfect people. If you attend a church or if you visit a church and you say to yourself, this church is perfect. Well, let me tell you, don't join it because you will undoubtedly make it imperfect because we are not perfect. There is no perfect church because there are no perfect people. The church is made up of redeemed people who are trying to live out their redemption together in a spiritual hospital, striving to make us all more spiritually healthy. You and I, each and every one of us, come into our church with weaknesses, with faults, with shortcomings, with failures, with limitations and imperfections, 
And in spite of that, we are to draw strength from the Lord Jesus Christ in our relationships with one another as we mutually pursue a relationship with God where we are conformed to the image of His glory. God has miraculously woven together an imperfect and incredibly diverse group of people to bring about His plans and His purposes in our lives individually and in our church corporately. And so we who are imperfect come together for that purpose. And so as Jesus sees what this church is doing, there is no rebuke, there is no condemnation, but there is a commendation to this church that is one that you and I should strive after. So I believe that this is described in a cause and effect relationship. And we're going to look at this from the cause effect first, even though from the cause impact first, even though the effect is listed first scripturally. So we'll do this verse a little bit backwards. So let's look at the cause of this commendation that Jesus gives to the church. Number one, they have a little power. Now, this is not an insult to them, but this is their reality. And actually, it's every church's reality that we only have a little power. In the grand scheme of things, as compared to God's omnipresence and God's omniscience and God's omnipotence, We all have just a little power. But most specifically, this was probably a church that was small in number. They probably had very little in the way of material resources. They were possibly considered outcast by the community that they lived in. And we'll see a hint of that a little bit later. But what you and I need to be able to say is, We have weaknesses, we have failures, we have limitations. But that's okay, because... We have a God who is capable capable of doing the impossible. When we come to terms with our own spiritual weaknesses and our own limitations, it is at that point that we begin to depend on God. Let me say that again. When we become aware of our own spiritual weaknesses and when we recognize our own limitations, it's a good thing because it is then that we will depend upon God. You know, when Paul was traveling and preaching and planting churches and discipling believers, he was encountering some kind of great difficulty, and it's recorded for us in the scripture that Paul prayed to God earnestly three times asking God to remove from him this mysterious thorn in the flesh. And God said, no, I'm not going to do that. In 2 Corinthians 12.9, God's response to Paul's earnest prayer is this. My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. And I would imagine that that was like a two-by-four up against the head of Paul when he recognized what God is saying. As long as you are strong in yourself, then you will not have my power working on your behalf. My grace is sufficient for you and all your weaknesses and all your limitations and all your shortcomings. For power, my power, is perfected in your weakness. Paul's response to that is this. 
Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses. Why? So that the power of Christ may dwell in me. The more acquainted we are with our shortcomings and limitations, our propensity to sin and to fail, it will increase our dependency upon God. And when we get to that point in our walk with God, it is then that the power of Christ dwells in us in such a way that God makes up for the frailty, for the limitation, and for the imperfection. What can be explained by us is our glory, what can, be, what can be explained by God, then becomes his glory. So they have a little power, but number two in this commendation, they have great faithfulness. Verse 8, you have a little power and have kept my word. In spite of their limitations, they have kept God's word. There's no mention of immorality or idolatry. There isn't any heresy. There isn't sin running rampant within the walls of the church. Instead, there is this commendation for their faithfulness. They have been faithful to obey what God has commanded. And so what Scripture says to do, they do. What Scripture says to avoid, then they avoid. They don't do that perfectly, but as the redeemed who strive to live out their faith the best they know how, they have been faithful. God sees that, and God gives them a commendation for their faithfulness. Thirdly, they have stood firm. Verse 8, you have a little power and have kept my word and have not denied my name. In the probable face of persecution, against overwhelming difficulty, with the realization that they didn't have the ability in themselves to radically change their circumstances, they stood tall. They remained faithful and they did not deny his name. They didn't buckle. They didn't waver. They didn't back up. They didn't renounce. They didn't compromise. They remained faithful to the name of Jesus Christ. Now, on an individual basis, you and I might be put up against individuals who would challenge our faith or would ridicule our faith in Christ. And we have an option at that point to stand firm, to proudly proclaim our salvation in Christ and our allegiance to follow him. But in other parts of the world, there are people who are asked to denounce their faith or risk death. So to, the, to these individuals who have a little power and have kept the word and have not denied the name of Jesus, you can make no mistake about it. There is a specific commendation to us from the Lord Jesus Christ. They stood faithful and they stood firm of the person and the position of Jesus Christ. Well, as individual believers and as a local body of believers, this is what you and I are called to do. We are called to remain faithful and to stand firm, resting in the sovereign rule of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, the Holy One, who is true and holds the key of David. Now, the effect that we see in the beginning part of verse 8, that is the 
flip side of the cause is this. The effect is he has opened a door. Because they have a little power, because they have remained faithful, because they have stood firm, he has opened a door. Let's read verse 8. Behold, I have put before you an open door which no one can shut. So this feeds off of what has already been said about who the messenger is and what the messenger does. What he opens, no one can close. And what he closes, no one can open. So Jesus, the one who holds the key to his spiritual kingdom and allows and denies entrance to whom he desires because he is the Holy One that is true and sovereignly reigns over the world that he created, he also holds the key to the church's ministry success. Now, the word door here, which is not used in the description of the messenger, it could be implied that he holds the door to the spiritual kingdom. But here specifically, door is an opportunity to minister based upon the authority that Jesus has, not only over this world, but over his spiritual kingdom. We read in 1 Corinthians 16, verses 8 and 9, But I will remain in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective service has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. And so Paul uses the word door to talk about an opportunity for ministry. Again, Paul would use the same word in 2 Corinthians 2.12. Now when I came to Troas for the gospel of Christ... And when a door was opened for me in the Lord. So God is going to open a door of ministry for this church that no one can shut because they have been faithful. They have stood firm and they recognize that they only have a little bit of power. So here's the way this works. The reward for a job well done is more work. They have been successful in their ministry and the church at Philadelphia and God is going to open another door of ministry for them so that they can see God's hand at work in their midst. As they were confronted with that understanding, Jesus shares with them the certainty of the result that will come from this new door of ministry. The result is spiritual victory. Because of the opening of the door that we read about in verse 8, that is predicated on the recognition of them having a little power and of them being faithful and of them standing firm, we read in verse 9, Behold, I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie, I will make them come and bow down at your feet and make them know that I have loved you. So this spiritual victory that they are going to enjoy is the defeat of God's enemies. Now, we've seen that term, the synagogue of Satan, before. It was mentioned in the church at Smyrna. Those that claim to love God and those that claim to stand for God and those that are fighting against these churches because of their belief in God, but they're really not 
on God's side, this synagogue of Satan could refer to immorality and idolatry. It could refer to the pagan or emperor worship that was rampant in the first century. What Jesus is likely saying to these Christians in Philadelphia is that these who claim to be Jews may be Jews ancestrally. They may be Jews in terms of their adherence to ritual and ceremony, but they are not Jews spiritually because they reject the Holy One, the one that is true, the one that holds the keys to God's spiritual kingdom, and they are opposed to the church of Jesus Christ. Jesus knows that their victory is assured and it's unclear what this defeat of God's enemy actually means. It could be that some of these false believing Jews are going to be converted and will see the error of their way and will acknowledge that God loves them. Or it could be a physical and a literal defeat, a silence of these enemies in a real-world scenario where they would be forced to come and bow at the feet of these Christians and recognize that God really does love them. While it's unclear to know exactly what this defeat looks like, what is very clear are these two phrases where God says, I will cause and I will make. And what that means is God is going to impose upon them a forced acknowledgement that they are not the true followers of God. They are liars, even though they are Jews. They are of the synagogue of Satan, although they claim to worship the true God. And somehow and in some way, God is going to make them know that he has loved the Christians in this church at Philadelphia, implying to these false believers that they've got it all wrong, And God loves the people that they're actually fighting against and opposing. Well, it's good news for us to know this, that despite how we are oppressed, despite how we might be ridiculed or even persecuted because of our faith by people who think they are doing God's work, we know that the Holy One, the one that is true, is fighting for us and will at some point deliver us and he will impose defeat of the enemies of God. Now, in this last section of our outline, we're going to look at number three, our promise. We'll specifically see the promise listed in verses 10 and 12 with the instruction mixed in in verse 11. So let's read what it says here in verse 10. Because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I also will keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. And so this promise here in verse 10 is expressed, number one, we will be protected. This promise is expressed in three ways. Number one, we will be protected. Now, there is a bit of a cause and effect relationship here, and it goes like this. Because we have kept, because we have kept the word of perseverance, this refers back to what was already said in the commendation to the church at Philadelphia, because of their faithful obedience, because they stood firm and did not deny, because of that, the effect is, they will be kept. We will be kept because we have kept. 
we stand secure in our relationship with God and will withstand the judgment that comes upon the world in both the current age and in a future eschatological time. We will be kept. Now, in this promise that begins in verse 10 and runs all the way through verse 12, it is littered with eschatological implication, even though it is speaking to a present-day circumstance. So, because the church of Philadelphia has kept, they will be kept from the hour of testing. Now, most commentators understand this to be the wrath of God, not a general testing, not a general temptation, or a general trial, but it is the hour of testing or judgment that will come at the end times when Jesus comes back for his church and pronounces judgment on the unredeemed. So what we see here in verse 10, this reference to the hour or the wrath of God that is going to come at the end times, there's four truths about the wrath of God that will come in the future that we need to understand. Number one, letter A, it is future. Jesus says it is about to come. Now we see all kinds of hurt and pain and suffering in our world. We see things that look like the wrath of God to us. But when the wrath of God comes, it's not going to look like anything anyone has ever seen before. And I would imagine there are many, many people who would look back at the Holocaust of World War II and think that that looks like the wrath of God. Well, it was horrible. It was the worst atrocity that mankind has ever seen when some six million Jews were killed because of their ancestry. But the wrath of God will be pain and suffering on an entirely different scale, like nothing we have ever seen before. Letter B, it is limited in time. Jesus says the hour of, and when he says that, it means a defined specific season or a defined period of time. Now, as we think about that, there has been a general sense of wrath and judgment inflicted upon the world that began all the way back in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve sinned and he kicked them out of the garden and then handed down the curse that was going to be a part of our experience until God took us home. The wrath of God is limited in duration, but the general judgment that comes from the fall of man has begun from the fall of man and will continue until this physical world is done away with. Letter C in our understanding about the wrath of God is this. It is worldwide. Jesus says here it will come upon the whole world, not just against the residents of the area of Philippi, or of, of Philadelphia rather, but this wrath is going to be inflicted upon the entire world, all mankind, in all the corners of the world, in every remote village, in every tribe, in every city, in every nation, the wrath of God is going to be poured out upon all of mankind. Now, letter D, what we need to understand about the wrath of God is, it is for unbelievers. 
It says specifically, those who dwell on the earth. Well, those who dwell on the earth typically reflects those who are unbelievers. It is not the Christian in this world who suffers and has difficulty, like all the rest, but the wrath of God that is going to come in some future time for a limited period of time has a very specific object, and that object is those who dwell on the earth. Again, referring to the unbeliever. Now we see this in Revelation 6.10. And they cried out with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Again in Revelation 8.13. Then I looked and I heard an eagle flying in midheaven, saying with a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth because of the remaining blasts of the trumpet of the three angels who are about to sound. Now there is a terrible day of wrath coming for the unbeliever, those who have not given their lives to Christ, They will suffer through the non-survivable wrath of God that will usher them into an eternity separated from God. Now, this wrath is not for the believer. It does not speak of the general pain and suffering and hardship we experience while on this earth. It speaks of the coming judgment on the world. And this is what God is saying to the church at Philadelphia. Now, after this beginning pronouncement of the wrath of God, we find mixed in here in verse 11 the instruction. Verse 11 says, I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have so that no one will take your crown. So, as we've looked at in other churches, God isn't coming to them specifically. God is just coming. He's coming, and he's coming very quickly at a time when we don't expect, and this speaks very clearly of the second coming of Christ, confirming the previous eschatological understandings that are a part of what we've looked at in verse 10. Jesus says, I am coming quickly, and his instruction is, remain faithful It's an encouragement to them as they continue to serve him in this new door of ministry that God is going to open to them that they are just to remain faithful. He says specifically, hold fast what you have. What do they have? Well, they have their faithfulness. They have their obedience. They have their loyalty. They have their confidence in the person and in the position of Jesus Christ. And when we have those things, we are to remain faithful in those things and continue to serve Him as faithfully as we know how. So we are to keep these things close to us. We're not to relax or release our grip. We are to cling to these things with all of our strength so that no one will take your crown. Now, there's a lot of confusion about what this might mean. It probably refers to the crown of life, and we see a very similar wording in Revelation 2.10. But it refers to our salvation. That does not mean that our salvation can be lost 
or that someone can take our salvation away from us, it means that our remaining faithfulness demonstrates the truth, the genuineness of our profession of faith. So just as we looked at last week, there was not a threat of removing salvation. It was a promise that their salvation couldn't be lost. And so we would understand this in a very similar fashion. So we've seen the first promise that we will be kept from that future day of the wrath of God. Now, the second promise that we see begins in verse 12. We will be made pillars. Even though we have just a little power we will be made pillars. Verse 12 says, He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he will, no, he will not go out from it anymore. Now, a pillar represents stability. It represents permanence. It represents immovability. As you and I look at these massive buildings in our time and in our day, those massive columns that hold up these huge porches or these overhangs or these roofs, they represent to us permanence and strength and immovability. So the city of Philadelphia was a city that was often struck by earthquake. And when an earthquake would come, the earth would shake violently and some of these pillars would begin to shake and they would rock and perhaps Debris would begin to fall. And so when that would happen, the people would flee from these structures to find safety. But here, you and I will become pillars in God's temple that will provide stability that no one will ever have to flee from. There will be no earthquake that could ever take it down. There is nothing created that can ever topple over the pillar that you and I will become in the new temple of God. We will become future, excuse me, we will become pillars in the future and eternal temple of God, even though you and I are frail and feeble and possess a little power in this life. Now, the third promise that we see is also in verse 12. We will be inscribed with his name. Verse 12 reads, or continues, And I will write on him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God, and my new name. Now, this city, like most cities in the ancient world, had pagan temples, or temples that were devoted to emperors or rulers, and these would always have pillars, and these pillars were often decorated with carvings or etchings of the image of this deity or of this emperor. They would be inscribed with sayings that would be designed to give honor to the individuals that were being depicted there. So these carvings and these inscriptions that would be found in pagan temples were used to honor and recognize the individuals that are a part of that temple. And so, like the pagan pillars in the city, we who are the pillars of God's eternal future coming temple will also be inscribed with something. We will be inscribed with the name of my God. That's what Jesus says. Think about it like we will be tattooed with the name of my God. And what that signifies is ownership. 
the name of my God, Jesus is God, the Father, being tattooed on us indicates that we belong to him. Secondly, we would be inscribed with the name of the city of my God indicates our true citizenship. Just like in the ancient world where an individual's name would be written on a register, our name, excuse me, the name of our city, the city of this new Jerusalem, will be inscribed on us indicating that this is our true home. Thirdly, will be inscribed with my new name. Jesus doesn't tell us what that new name is here. It's the name that we will be privileged to call him when we see him in his glorified state. You and I belong to the one who is the Holy One of God, the one that is true, the one that holds the key to God's spiritual kingdom. He is inscribed our citizenship on us, indicating that we belong to him and our true home is in this eternal heaven that he holds the key to. And then we see the final part in verse 13, this appeal that is made from Jesus himself to all of the churches. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Well, the message is very, very clear. We don't have a lot of power, but we are to remain faithful and loyal to the Holy One, the One that is true, the One that holds the keys to the spiritual kingdom, the One who has granted us access to this royal household. He's opening a door of ministry for us. And as we walk through the door of ministry that God opens for us, we can be assured that God is going to defeat his enemies so that we will have spiritual victory. God has secured it for us. It doesn't mean that we walk out on a whim. It doesn't mean that we dream up ridiculous fantasies and ideas. But it means as God reveals to us individually, and locally, what we are to do, what we are to do to serve Him as we are faithful and true to Him, God assures us of our victory because we belong to Him. He has inscribed His name on us. Our true citizenship is in heaven, and no one can shut that door for us. Isn't that good news today? I hope it is encouraging to your heart as you think about what God has done for us in this incredible gift of salvation, what it is he is keeping us from of that future day when the wrath of God is poured out on all of mankind, that you and I are safe and secure in him. Let's pray together. Well, Father, we give you thanks that you are faithful, that you are the Holy One, that you are true. And we acknowledge joyfully that you are the one that holds the keys to your kingdom. And Father, how we give you thanks that you have opened the door of your kingdom to us. Not because of anything that we have done, not because of who we are, not because of what we might do for you, but simply because you chose to grant us access to yourself and to your kingdom. God, I pray that that truth would wash over us in such a way that we would be compelled to live for you as faithfully as we know how, drawing strength from our brothers and sisters, finding great hope 
within this local body of believers, being assured that you are the one who goes before us, who walks beside us and protects behind us and assures us of our victory as we strive to follow you. God, may your will be done in each and every heart and every life. And through this church, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.